Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Ultimately, the defence of the nation is one of the most important requirements of a federal government. And I will keep making the case it's uh, what progressive governments need to do because it's uh, workers and families that suffer from conflicts. Hi, I'm Daniel Hurst, Guardian Australia's foreign affairs and defence correspondent, coming to you from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples. Today on Australian Politics, my guest is Pat Conroy, the Minister for Defence Industry and also the Minister for International Development and the Pacific. He's joining us on the road after a week selling a major overhaul of the Navy. On Tuesday, the Albanese government announced it would revamp Australia's fleet of warships after receiving advice that the existing fleet was too old and not suited to the threats the country faces. But will these changes be delivered quickly enough? Or will they just increase regional tensions? And is the extra $11.1 billion over the next 10 years justified during a cost-of-living crisis? I put these questions to Minister Conroy, as well as criticisms that have been levelled by both the Greens and the Coalition. Minister for Defence Industry, Pat Conroy, thanks very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Daniel. So just to start with Navy's surface fleet review, um, I think our listeners would benefit from a bit of an explanation of the rationale. What really is at play here? What are you asking the Naval surface fleet to do? Well, I, I think if we start with base principles, the Defence Strategic Review found that uh, we face the greatest strategic uncertainty since World War II. We're facing a strategic arms race, but we're also... Uh, have inherited an Australian Defence Force that is not fit for purpose. It's not fit to respond to uh, eventualities without a 10-year warning horizon. And so it recommended us examining the structure of the Royal Australian Navy, particularly the combatant fleet, to make sure that it reflected uh, the tasking requirements that the government of the day may require. And that's why we commissioned the independent review. And the independent review found that the the structure of the fleet was we did not have uh, enough uh, combatant vessels. Secondly, the sort of balance of the fleet was too much towards uh, anti-submarine warfare compared to other requirements for uh, naval vessels and that we needed to reshape it and invest more. The, the review had this title, Enhanced Lethality surface combatant fleet. So, I mean, it sounds, I don't want to use the word Orwellian because that's not quite the right use of it, but can you sort of explain this enhanced lethality term? What 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 does that mean? Well, it means, to be uh, frank about it, 
increased strike power. One of the recommendations from the DSR, the central thesis of the DSR, was that we needed to have an Australian Defence Force that had greater strike ability, the ability to strike adversaries, uh, hit them harder, hit them further away from Australia, not because we ever want to do that, but to deter conflict. Uh, And we've talked previously about things like the submarines. So it's all about constructing a Navy that places question marks in an adversary's mind. And one part of that is having enhanced lethality, so having the ability to threaten uh, adversaries or defend our assets uh, more effectively as a way of deterring conflict. And so one of the most significant parts of the announcement, everyone focuses on the number of ships that we're acquiring, but uh, a big thing is we're moving from the last government's plan, which would have across the fleet uh, 432 missile cells, so across all our naval vessels, uh, 432 missile cells to launch missiles out of, to a fleet where we would have somewhere between 700 and a bit over 800 missile cells. So that's close to doubling the, the amount of strike the Navy can do. And that, that strike is not just offensive, it's defensive. So that's having um, missiles that can intercept other missiles to protect our vessels and our sea lanes. So on that, the Greens defence spokesperson, David Shoebridge, said the framing of this review as being to increase lethality and spending on the military, quote, should tell you everything you need to know. It's all about threatening our neighbours, not defending Australia. Is he right? No, he's completely wrong and and Shoebridge has no credibility. He grandstands uh, all the time on defence and just searches for a headline. And I'm sorry for being frank, but I find some of the commentary really unhelpful. Um, How do you deter... An adversary, you deter an adversary by them knowing that we have a well-equipped ADF that could respond uh, in circumstances. You don't deter an adversary by not having an effective Navy. This is not about threatening anyone. This is about a potential adversaries in a region where we're seeing the biggest arms race since World War II, knowing that we have a well-equipped Navy that can be effective in defending Australia's assets whether it's our maritime uh, uh, sea lines of communication or whether it's um, army task forces or other things. This is about defending the nation rather than threatening anyone. And speaking of deterrence, uh, I just want to drill down into the capability arrival dates. So there's been a bit of talk this week about the fact that we don't get a new Tier 1 ship about until 2034 and the Anzac-class frigates start to get retired sooner than that. So is there a gap? You talked about the 10-year you know, warning window not being there anymore, but is there a capability gap that you're dealing with? Uh, no, there isn't for a couple of reasons. One, because we're investing in um, up-arming our existing ships. So part of the announcement is that we will be equipping um, our air warfare destroyers with Tomahawk uh, cruise missiles. We're the only third, only the third nation in the world to acquire Tomahawk cruise missiles. So they'll be going onto the air warfare destroyers in the next couple of years. Uh, that will be complemented by a upgraded uh, combat system, uh, Aegis Baseline Nine, and we're also equipping the Hunter, uh, sorry, the air warfare destroyers and the uh, Anzac class frigates with naval strike missiles. So. That's a significant investment in our current fleet. On top of that, the decision to purchase and accelerate the purchase of a general purpose frigate. So these frigates are around three to 5,000 tonnes 
They'll have the ability to locate submarines through Totoray sonar. They'll have vertical launch cells to have missile fire missiles, and they'll have between 60... The, the, four, the four options that the reviewers identified have between 16 and 32 vertical launch cells. So the, these are very effective ships that will be getting very quickly, and the plan is the first of these will be delivered by the end of the decade, and two more will be delivered by 2034, so that means under the last government's plan we would only have one new warship by 2034. We'll have four new warships by 2034, so a quadrupling of new ships while um, increasing uh, the, uh, the, the ability of our current vessels. So the Hunter-class frigates, uh, there's been a lot of talk about this over the last few years. You're cutting the number of Hunter-class frigates on order from nine to six. You're also cutting the number of offshore patrol vessels you're buying from 12 to six. Are you throwing good money after bad with those? Why why cutting it back rather than scrapping them altogether? Well, this is based on the recommendations of the independent review. And the independent review found that we need a uh, what's called theatre-level anti-submarine ability. So that means we need to have a very advanced ship that can detect, uh, hunt and kill submarines uh, in a large area. And the hunter-class submarine, uh, hunter-class anti-submarine frigates will be the most advanced submarine hunting ship in the world. They are the most advanced capability. And the review said, uh, but we only need six of them. Nine will be tilting the structure of the force too much towards anti-submarine warfare and not enough towards, for example, uh, escort duties or being able to defend against aircraft. So they said it's a great ship uh, and we should be getting six of them, not nine, as part of a much larger fleet. So we'll have a uh, fleet of warships of 26 compared to the current 11. On the offshore patrol vessel, uh, that was a ship that the last government decided to acquire when circumstances were very different. Uh, it is a ship built to commercial standards, not naval standards. So it doesn't, it's not designed to actually be in conflict. It is a patrol boat, but it's a very large patrol boat. And the independent review said, complete the six that we um, are in the process of building, but um, the workhorse for the minor war vessel, so for the patrol boat fleet, should be what's called Evolved Cape class patrol boats for both the Navy and the Australian border force. And that's a smaller vessel. It's got a smaller crew. It's more suited to the sort of constabulary needs that we're seeing at the moment. So it wasn't about uh, the merit of projects. It was about the balance of the force that drove those decisions. Um, the Shadow Defence Minister, Andrew Hastie, said this week that firepower should be the priority, but he also claimed, quote, the Iranian-backed Houthis probably have a better strike capability than the Australian Defence Force at the moment. What's your response to that? Well, I, I found uh, Mr Hastie's contribution to this entire debate, quite frankly, bizarre. Like, it, it, if you take his ridiculous claims around Houthis at face value, that implicitly is condemning it, the government he was a party of. Like, his was the last government. He was the Assistant Defence Minister uh, in the last government. So if his claims are true, which they're not, um, that means they allowed a situation where um, the Houthis have more strike power than the Royal Australian Navy. So I found on that front it was a bizarre and contribution not grounded in fact. But the truth is that we have a significant strike ability in our current naval vessels. And as I said, we're investing in uh, a fleet that will have a 
between just under or just over double the number of uh, missile cells that the, uh, the Liberal government planned for. His claims were bizarre. So first off, he claimed that there was no new money for the, uh, the, the fleet, and then he changed it to say, well, there was new money but not enough new money, and then he said that we weren't getting enough missile cells when we're doubling it, almost doubling it, compared to the last government's plan. So uh, if anything, I found his comments even less grounded in fact than Senator Shoebridge's. Uh, well, I mean, I think that one of the points he seemed to be making was around the idea that the rise of uh, use of drones, armed drones, defending against drones. And so does the ADF actually have enough of that, ca- that capability, the sort of more nimble, smaller, autonomous capability? Yeah, and this was explored in estimates last, last week. Uh, we have over 700 drones already in service in the Australian Defence Force, and we'll be introducing our first armed drone uh, this year, we've also examining what is the right anti-drone or counter-drone technology. So uh, it was very strange because this review and this policy announcement is all about our major surface vessels. It wasn't about other parts of the Australian Defence Force. And people seem to have given up criticising what we're doing to try and then throw red herrings at us about other things that the review wasn't about. But as I said, we've got over 700 drones, first armed drone in service this year, and we are examining the best ways of defending against drones. And I'm very confident that the ADF uh, will have the capabilities it needs uh, should a conflict occur. Now, there's been talk about these six new large optionally crewed surface vessels. Um, There's an attempt by some journalists to call them drone ships, but I suspect they're much, much larger than that implies. What are these new large optionally crewed surface vessels um, and why is the government saying that they, that you'll have crews on them rather than having them without crews? Well, uh, we've stated our intention that uh, we will crew them. As, as the name suggests, uh, crewing could be optional, but at this stage we think it's best to have uh, crews on them. These are large vessels, so the exact size is still being worked through, but think around a couple of thousand tonnes displacement is what people have talked about. So that would be the size of a... Uh, a, a a medium-sized vessel, so something somewhere between 70 and 120 metres long is how it's been described to me. That's not what we're getting, but that sort of size is what people have contemplated. And they would have on them 32 vertical launch cells. And so the idea would be that this would be sort of like a loyal wingman that would partner with a Hobart-class air warfare destroyer or a Hunter-class anti-submarine frigate. They would work together in tandem and so you might have a target being detected by a P-8 patrol aircraft or the radar of one of our destroyers, and instead of firing missiles from um, one of the ships, you'd fire the missiles from the large optional crude surface vessels, uh, and you'd fire their missiles first because then they could go back to a remote, uh, the rear area, whether uh, it was a, uh, a port or if um, uh, on-sea replenishment is developed reload the missiles while that frigate or destroyer never leaves its patrol area. So it's about um, force multiplying, multiplying the effect of the air warfare destroyer or the hunter-class frigate. And it's a it's an innovative way of dealing with some of the challenges that are out there. And we made it very clear that we want to be a fast follower of the US Navy's work. Uh, we think it's uh, Is this the because, sorry to, cut, sorry to cut in, but is this because they don't actually exist yet. They've been, they're in development, but they're not in service yet, and the US is the one developing this. 
Well, they're, they're being developed. They're not in service yet, and that's why we're talking about uh, building and deploying them in the mid-2030s onwards. But the US Navy is very serious about them. They are funding the development of it. They've already got uh, testing uh, occurring of parts of the systems that were going to them. Um, and we think that's a really innovative complement to uh, large crewed vessels. Uh, and it's a way of increasing the strikeability of the Royal Australian Navy in a way that's cost effective because these vessels uh, will be cheaper to build than equivalent ships carrying uh, that number of cells. And they'll be faster to re resupply as well. But you said they'd be in operation from the mid-2030s onwards. So isn't this, again, if this is such a device, a decisive decade, isn't that, again, there's a gap? There's a gap in all of these plans? Well, you, we, we can't pluck these out of thin air. They have to be developed. And what we released is a 20-year plan to really enhance the lethality of the Navy, but we're making urgent decisions uh, in the short term. So the Tomahawk missiles, naval strike missiles, the fact that we're going to be conducting the fastest procurement for a naval vessel in living memory to get the general purpose frigates, just to run you through that time frame, which I don't think people have reported on enough. The, uh, the government only signed off on the general purpose frigates recently in the last uh, few months. We'll be selecting the right uh, ship from those four next year and we intend to be cutting steel in 2026 with the first one delivered by the end of the decade. That is the fastest acquisition of a warship in a long, long time and that demonstrates our commitment to uh, defending the nation and then that will give us space to bring on these large optionally uh, crewed surface vessels behind that. So uh, just one more on this topic before we move to a couple of other issues across your portfolios. Um, the government has announced an extra $1.7 billion in this budget, four-year budget cycle, and then $11.1 billion over the decade. Is this sort of funding, I mean, obviously budgets are about priorities. What would you say to people who are concerned that this is, you know, potentially funds that could be going to increase welfare payments that are, you know, below the level people need to survive on, we've got health and education needs that are quite pressing. What would you say to people who are concerned about the priorities of Australia's spending on, on, on extra military funding? Well, I, I'd say I understand your concerns and good governments need to do both. And that's why we've uh, allocated significant amounts of funding for cost of living relief, whether it's the uh, the uh, energy bill relief that we introduced last year or it's the tax cuts that every single Australian taxpayer will receive this year or uh, our investment in health through tripling the bulk billing incentive or reducing the cost of medicine, good governments can do both. But ultimately, the defence of the nation is one of the most important requirements of a federal government and I will keep making the case it's uh, what progressive governments need to do because it's uh, workers and families that suffer from conflicts. They're the ones who end up getting set to wars. It's uh, people who um, do without if we have a war. I've used the example that in World War II, uh, we were spending 40% of our GDP on defending the nation. We're talking about increasing defence investment to 2.4% as a deterrence. So I think it's a progressive cause for the government of the day to invest in defence, and that's why my great political hero is John Curtin. And we've been through this before, so I won't press the point. Moving to your um, portfolio responsibility as Minister for the Pacific. Um, in November, on the sidelines of the Pacific Islands Forum, 
uh, you and the government were quite um, well lauding this new uh, climate and security deal that Australia reached with Tuvalu to allow for the um, resettlement of a set number of people each year, given Tuvalu is particularly vulnerable to sea level rise, but also uh, closer security cooperation, essentially an Australian veto on it doing deals with other countries on security issues. Now, there's been an election in Tuvalu. How real is the risk of that deal now falling over? Well, we'll see the Tuvaluan governments very close to being formed. And we've said that we will obviously work with the new Tuvaluan government on the implementation of the Fali Pillar Union. Um, but I would stress a couple of points. One, uh, the, the concept of the Fali Pili Treaty was one that the Tuvaluan government came to us with. It was their idea because it represented the interests uh, and was to the benefit of the Tuvalan people, and we were humbled and honoured that they approached us to, to do it, and um, we obviously said yes. So I'm still confident that uh, the Fali Pili Union will continue because ultimately it's responding to what the uh, uh, people of Tuvalu want, but ultimately we'll work with uh, the government of the day on that, uh, but importantly... Uh, we'll just see how that government forms. But it is the most significant announcement we've undertaken in the, in the Pacific, the most significant policy we've undertaken in the Pacific since supporting PNG independence in 1975, the uh, investment in infrastructure services in Tuvalu, helping with climate adaptation, uh, granting uh, permanent residence rights to an entire nation through a carefully uh, managed uh, process of a certain number each year is huge for the Pacific and it's huge for Australia. It may have been brought forward by the then government of Tuvalu, but I wonder if the domestic groundwork wasn't done. So is there, are you open to renegotiating it, particularly on the security aspects of the deal, in order to salvage it? Well, I, the, the the government of Tuvalu commissioned a panel of independent eminent people to design it. So there was... Um, development and consultation much broader than the government and uh, we all stand ready to respond to uh, whoever forms government in Tuvalu uh, and we'll work through those details with them. As a matter of habit, I don't disclose or, or foreshadow confidential discussions with governments, uh, but we'll listen and act on their priorities as we try to do with every Pacific nation. Mm. Another Pacific nation, Nauru, recently announced it was switching diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to Beijing. Uh, how uh, are you responding to that and do you think that this will lead to other agreements between China and, and Nauru and other Pacific nations? Oh, look, I, we, we've made it abundantly clear that that's a decision for sovereign nations. Of the 16 Pacific Island Forum members that uh, have diplomatic power, so excluding things like French territories, 13 of them recognise the People's Republic of China uh, three represent recognise Taiwan, and amongst the thirteen is Australia. So, and we've got excellent relations with all those countries in the Pacific, regardless of whether they recognise PRC or Taiwan. So, ultimately, that's a question for those governments. Um, and just one other issue before we wrap it up in your capacity as Minister for International Development, uh, you, in a statement on sixteenth of January, announced extra funding. $6 million in extra funding for the UN aid agency UNRWA, and you also said that international humanitarian law must be adhered to in Gaza. Is Israel adhering to international humanitarian law, and when do you think funding can be reinstated to UNRWA? Well, uh, on funding for aid for Palestine, we've allocated 
uh, $46 million to supporting that. Uh, only $6 million of that was to go to UNRWA. And so I want to assure your listeners that that other $40 million is flowing uh, through uh, to support uh, what is a, a really devastating situation in, in Palestine uh, that's occurring uh, uh, in, in the Middle East. Uh, I would make the point that um, we, we, we think that everyone should abide by international humanitarian law and that's why we've been so vocal about it. But is Israel adhering to it? Well, I, again, um, I, I'm not in a position to, to comment on that, Daniel. I, all I can say is everyone should adhere to uh, uh, international human law. Minister Pat Conroy, thank you very much for speaking with us. Yes, thank you, Daniel. This episode was produced by Daniel Simo and Alison Chan. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. I'm Daniel Hurst. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit